We all have stories from the pandemic, memories of the last fun event we attended before going into quarantine, reconnecting with a high school friend on Zoom to pass the time, excitement, fear, and perhaps a few tears after getting your first vaccination. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Our guest today has penned a book reflecting on her experiences during the pandemic, and she's encouraging others to put their pandemic stories on paper, too. Kate Walter's new book is called Behind the Mask, Living Alone in the Epicenter. Kate, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you, George. I'm glad to be here. So you're a longtime resident of West Beth Artists Housing in Manhattan. For those not familiar with it, tell us about that community. West Beth Artists Housing is uh, subsidized housing for artists in the Far West Village. It opened in 1970, and we were just about ready to celebrate our 50th anniversary when the pandemic hit and we went into lockdown. There are about 380-some apartments in West Beth, and there's all types of artists here. I'm a writer, but there's lots of visual artists, photographers, painters, sculptors. There's dancers, singers, musicians, all kinds of artists. How long have you been living there? It'll be 25 years in uh, this summer, coming summer. And this is an active community. A lot is going on there, right? A lot is going on. And that was part of the drama for me as someone who's single and lives alone. I was very involved with a lot of activities in the community room, and we have a gallery. And, of course, all of that shut down. It's been reopened, but it was a very hard year with all that shut down. So what was going through your mind when things started to shut down during the pandemic? Well, I guess as everyone, it was just a shock because it seemed like every day, every week, something new shut down. Uh, the the museum shut down, the restaurant shut down, my church shut down and went online. Uh, it was like my whole life was shutting down. So, And we didn't know when it was going to end. We had no idea. So it was pretty upsetting and scary because of the unknown factor, mostly. Plus, we were worried about staying safe. In the book, you talk about the older people who live at West Beth and the fact that they mm. used to congregate in the lobby and they couldn't even do that anymore. Yeah. Right, right. Um, West Beth is what is called in Newark, a naturally occurring retirement community. I mean, I'm 72, but there's a lot of people who are older than me. There's a lot of people in their late 70s, 80s, even 90s. And interestingly enough, most of them are still productive and working artists. So, of course, this was of extra concern because of COVID having such a tough impact on the older community. So um, it, it felt really tough. But at least, you know, once the weather warmed up, people could go outside and sit in the courtyard. You referenced something at West Beth called the death board. What's the death board? Oh, yes. The death board, my friend calls it that. That's kind of a sarcastic uh, nickname. It's a bulletin board that's in our main lobby. And whenever someone dies, someone posts a photograph or some words about them. And, you know, depending on who the tenant is, there might be a lot of information posted about them, but it's pretty common to have uh, a post up there with uh, some information about the artist's life. And um, uh, I remember at one point when I was going away on vacation, this was before the pandemic, it seemed like every time I came back, there was a new name up there. And I mean, the security guard said to me, kidding around, don't go away on vacation, like as if whenever I went away, someone died. But it's just common because this is an aging community. Was there concern that there would be more names on that board because of COVID? Oh, sure. But as I say in the book, only two residents died of COVID, and they were both elderly, and I would say in not great health. So I don't think there was any higher death rate than normal in West Beth. 
So when people did come out and gather in the courtyard, get outside a bit, what were those conversations like? Well, there weren't that many conversations. Um, but, you know, they were brief. I mean, we're talking about before people got vaccinated, people had masks on. So you couldn't have a really long conversation. And plus, we were trying to keep our six feet. It would just be kind of, hi, how you doing? That kind of thing. What do you remember most about your last normal day before the pandemic took hold? My last normal day. This was when we had still heard about the pandemic, but we weren't in lockdown yet. Um, I write about that, and I encourage other people to write about that. My last normal day was something I did often. I met a friend for lunch at the B&H Dairy Restaurant in the East Village, and we had our usual. She had her blintzes, and I had my pierogies. And then um, I went to my writing workshop in the uh, West Village, uh, well, kind of the East Village. It's Broadway and 8th Street. I guess that's in between. And um, we had our workshop. And that was the last time I think the workshop met and the last time I ate in a restaurant inside until, you know, many months later. You write about how you ate Easter dinner alone for the first time in your life in April of 2020. What was that like Uh for you? Well, it was lonely because, I mean, I have a big family, as I write in the book, and I would always go out to my sister's house, and she has a lot of grandkids, nine grandkids, and I would get there early, and we would hide the Easter eggs in the yard, and that was sort of one of my fun jobs. Then the kids would come, and they would do the Easter egg hunt, and then we'd have a big dinner. So it was lonely because I was very used to spending it with my family, and um, I did my best to try and make myself a nice dinner, and I think I spoke to my sister on the phone, and I think we did a Zoom, and the kids showed their Easter baskets. Um, I I mean, as the pandemic went on, I think we did less Zooming on holidays. It was kind of like we kind of adjusted to it more. Yeah, because you say you also spent Christmas alone for the first time in your life. Yes, and this year I'm going out for Christmas, so that'll be good. What did you make for Christmas when you were alone, do you remember? Oh, gosh. I may have, That's a good question. I'm vegetarian. I made some kind of thing with roast potatoes and onions and, and vegetarian sausages, and it looked really good, I have to say, and it tasted good, too. So, you know, I tried my best to make myself a festive dinner to eat alone. <laughs> you say in the book that you told your sister that you were glad your mom wasn't around <laughs> to witness the pandemic. Right. Well, we had a conversation. I think it was on Mother's Day. I called up my sister to wish her happy Mother's Day. And then I don't know who brought it up. I think I brought it up. And I'd seen some friends on Facebook saying the same thing. And I said, I'm really glad mom isn't here because we would be so worried. And she said, I was just thinking the same thing. And I was kind of glad to see other people had expressed that sentiment on Facebook because, of course, we didn't want our mother to be dead. But, you know, at least this everyone I knew who had an elderly parent was so worried and freaked out. And our mom had died in 2017. So she missed it. Your mom had a long life. How old was she when she passed away? She was 95 when she died, so she had a very good life, yeah. And she was in pretty good shape mentally, physically, right up until the end. In the book, you reflect on your late mother's resiliency. Tell us about yeah. how your mom and her spirit helped you through the pandemic. Well, I kept thinking, you know, mom wouldn't give in. I'm going to start to cry. Mom would be strong. And that's just the kind of person she was. Um, she was, you know, Irish. She was born in Ireland. Um, and she always had this sort of steely Irish resolve, as I put it. And she just wasn't the kind of person who caved. I mean, uh, she was very strong. Our beach house was destroyed by Sandy. Well, not destroyed, but flooded. And she was there, you know, with her boots on, supervising everybody, you know, getting everything in order. I mean, she she dealt with that incredibly well. And she was pretty old at the time. So I just thought, well, if my mother could deal with all this, I could deal with 
deal with um, the lockdown. You describe everything you were doing during the pandemic as exhausting, though, even going for a walk mm-hmm. as exhausting. Why was it also exhausting? Describe that for well, me. Well, at the beginning, no one knew how the virus was spread. So every time you went outside your apartment, you felt like, oh, my God. Well, I felt anyway. Am I going to get COVID because I touched the, the elevator button? Did I touch something in the supermarket? It was exhausting because you didn't know how the virus was spread. Once we knew it was spread, spread by the air, I think it felt a little less scary. So going out to the supermarket was exhausting because you literally felt like I'm taking a big risk to do this. At least at my age, I felt that way. And I tried to go when it was not crowded. So um, it was exhausting. Yeah. What did you do to get over that exhaustion when you got home? Did you do anything in particular? Well, I don't remember. I mean, I, I, t- I mean, I had a lot going on on Zoom. I was doing Qigong and yoga and meditating, and I guess that helped. You got angry with a friend who wasn't very digitally savvy, right? Annoyed. Um, well, yes, because um, I felt that, well, I have this thing about baby boomers who are not, you know, online or digitally savvy, that it's kind of really ages you. And it seemed like even more pronounced during the pandemic because all of a sudden all my life was taking place on Zoom and all the activities that I did in person, like my writing workshops, my yoga class, were now on Zoom. So I felt like if I didn't know how to do the computer or use Zoom, I would have been lost. So I felt it was a very sad thing that people didn't know how to do this stuff. I did apologize for getting a little pissed at her. You know, It was her loss, really, not to be able to use technology. Who did you connect with most during the pandemic on Zoom and on the phone? Well, on on Zoom, it was mostly the same groups that I had belonged to before the pandemic. It's just that they shifted onto Zoom. I'm also, besides writing and yoga, I'm in a singing group that met in the West Beth community room. That group, unfortunately, it was very hard to do on Zoom, although it was more psychological to just see each other because you had to mute yourself. Now, how can you be in a singing group when you're muted, you know? Uh, but the best thing that happened in terms of connecting was I started this long weekly conversation with Jennifer, who was one of my best friends from high school. And she had contacted me and she's divorced, living alone. Her kids are all in different parts of the country and her grandkids are not near her. So she was like, do you want to talk on the phone? And I said, okay, sure. So suddenly we, we reconnected. It was like, suddenly we were like kids in high school on the phone every night. It reminded me of when I was a kid and my mother was yelling at me, are you still on the phone? Because, of course, we only had one phone back then and no call waiting. And it was just like a reconnection that was very intense. And we're very close now. And we talk on the phone every week for like an hour. And that was something that came out of the pandemic. I love this line in the book. I'm so desperate for company that I actually look forward to going to my chatty (laughs) periodontist. (laughs) I just saw him on Saturday. He's a great person, and he's uh, always telling me. He, he's also a very cultured older gay man. He invests in plays. He knows a lot about old movies. So he's always telling me about what play he saw or some old movie he saw. I mean, he knows a lot about the theater. So it was it, it, it was just entertaining, and I had so little company that um, I was very happy to listen to my, my periodontist chat. Speaking about being an older gay person, you are an older gay person, and you have a chapter in the book called Coming Out Again at 71. Now, why did you have to come out again at 71? 
Okay, well, obviously, I was totally out to all my friends and family and all my neighbors at Westbeth. But what happened was, again, something else that was canceled was my uh, my college reunion. I guess it was my 50th, right? I graduated in 1970, right? So this was my 50th reunion coming up. But since we weren't going to have it in person, they asked everyone to write 100 words kind of describing your life over the past 50 years, which of course is impossible to do. But as a writer, I took this as a challenge. I was like, okay, you can do this, Kate, you're a writer. And I wanted to condense my life into a hundred words, but I, it was important for me not just to give the career highlights, but to tell my former classmates that I'm gay because only a few of them knew that because I, mean, I wasn't out when I was in college. So that's what I meant by coming out again at 71. I had to put that in my little blurb and how much were you thinking about that? What am I going to say? How am I going to do this? Did those well, did that bring you know, back feelings? First, just reducing what I had to say to 100 words was not easy. Um, it's always easier to write long than short. Um, well, I, I knew I was going to tell them, and um, I kind of didn't care how people reacted because I wasn't going to see them at this point. I figured most people would be fine with it. And the way I did it was I basically talked about my uh, earlier book, which was a, a queer memoir. And I think I used that word queer memoir. And that was like the way I got it in without actually saying, oh, I'm gay or something. I didn't even know I was gay when I was in college. You know, I mean, it hadn't even hit me until I graduated. So it wasn't like I was suppressing anything, but it was sort of like after I came out, I looked back and I realized, oh yeah, now I know why blah, blah, blah was this way, you know. But I did think about this one woman who was you know, looking back, uh, she was a bully. I mean, we didn't really use that word that much back then, but this woman was a bully. She was always ragging on everybody. And I thought, oh, I wonder how she's going to feel when she reads this. I did think of her. I couldn't believe it. 50 years later, still thinking of the class bully. You have another chapter in the book called Gay Pride in Isolation. This is in yes. June of 2020. The Gay Pride yes. Parade did not take place the way it typically mm -hmm. does, right? Correct. Um, and then there was this alternative march, the Queer Liberation March, which I had attended the previous year in 2019. And it, the whole chapter sort of revolves around, should I go or not? Or should I, because again, this is before we're vaccinated. So I decided to sit it out because I didn't want to take a risk of being in a crowd at that point. What was that like to miss such a big moment, you know, in the gay community? Well, it was... It was a big moment, but it wasn't really a big moment because the parade was kind of smaller, I, I, I guess, because of it being in the middle of the pandemic. But I'd have to say prior to the pandemic, I think I only missed the, the, the Gay Pride March twice in my entire life since I've lived in New York. So this would have been the third year I missed it. So, yeah, it, it always felt like this is this is summer. Summer starts with Kate going to the Gay Pride Parade or March, whatever you're calling it. But that didn't happen this year, but um, I did go in 2020. Wait a minute. What was this past year? I didn't go in 2020. I did go in 2021. You say in the book, as a senior gay woman living in Greenwich yeah. Village, you feel that gay elders like you are the keepers of queer history. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do, because I think we know what it was like to be living in New York before we had any rights. I mean, I remember when I first moved to New York in 1975, we didn't even have a gay rights bill in New York City. That didn't pass until, like, I think it was 82 or 83. So you had no rights. I mean, you could be fired from your job. You could be let go from whatever. I mean, there were no rights. And I don't think younger people understand that, especially living in the day of gay marriage and, 
and that was inconceivable to me when I was in my 20s that we would have gay marriage. I know that music is important to you, and you say that it also yes. helped you get through the pandemic. What were you listening yes. to? Well, I was certainly listening to Rita Houston and her show every Friday night, The Whole Wide World. I, I mean, I always listened to it. It was part of my life, and it certainly helped me a lot during the pandemic. You have a chapter in your book about Rita Houston. Can you read that chapter for us? Okay. I think I'm, I might cut out some of it, but I think I'll okay, read yeah. most of it, okay? Sure. This was a terrible year, and December was a terrible month. First, my church burned down in a six-alarm fire on December 5th. Then my favorite DJ, Rita Houston, whose Friday night show, The Whole Wide World, on WFUV, got me through the lockdown, lost her six-year battle to cancer on December 15th. I felt like I spent the month of December crying. I cried when I saw the video of Middle Collegiate Church burning. I cried when I was home alone on Christmas Eve, watching the service from Middle Church that was broadcast nationally two years ago. I was in the sanctuary when they filmed it. A week earlier, I was anticipating Rita Houston's radio show. I never missed it. She hadn't been on the air in the past two weeks, and I hoped she was on vacation. That afternoon, I read the newsletter from the station and learned she had died that week. The station sent condolences to her wife, Laura Fidele, who also worked there. How did I not know Rita was gay? That evening, Friday, December 18th, WFUV broadcast her last show, recorded a few weeks previously, and co-hosted with her friend Paul Cavalcante. I was mesmerized. What would she play? How would she say farewell to her listeners and to her life? Her familiar, deep, honeyed voice did not sound good. I was crying and dancing, kicking myself for never going to the nation's holiday con- station's holiday concerts at the Beacon Theater, where she was the host. Now Rita Houston was gone. She was only 59. I consider her program another sanctuary. Her voice was reassuring and calming, always around when I needed her. She was there when I went through a terrible breakup and when my mother died. And more recently, she was there during the lockdown in New York City when I was really scared at the beginning. I recall her playing Van Morrison's Till We Get the Healing Done and thinking what a great choice it was. Of course, that was before Morrison turned into an idiotic anti-mask nut. Music is a huge part of my life. I listen to the radio and read books. I don't even own a TV. I send checks to my favorite public radio stations. I admit my fantasy job was being a DJ on the radio. The closest I got was working as a music reviewer for many magazines and newspapers. Like me, Rita Houston grew up in the New York City area listening to the legendary DJs Allison Steele and Vin Skelsa and Frankie Crocker, whom she cited as her influences. Houston was known for her eclectic mix and introducing listeners to new artists from around the globe. She was the first to play Brandy Carlisle on the air. Among her favorite artists were Bowie and Prince and John Prine and Sharon Jones. She also loved Joni Mitchell and Lucinda Williams and Ricky Lee Jones, and she was had incredible knowledge of 70s and 80s disco. Last summer when she played the classic, Last Night a DJ Saved My Life by In Deep, I tweeted to her that she was saving mine. She retweeted me. Houston could go from folk to funk or from alternative rock to disco in a heartbeat. Her mix and segues were brilliant. She was also a great interviewer. 
the station website has the entire playlist of her last show. Her final nix included several personal favorites, The Wait by the band, and I'll Take You There by Mavis Staples, and a remake of Roy Ayer's soulful classic, Everybody Loves the Sunshine. She closed with In My Time on Earth by the Waterboys. By now, I was sobbing. Besides the loss to her family and friends, Houston's death is a huge loss to music lovers and to WFUV, where she was the program director. She had revamped the station, taking it from a folky venue to a showcase of different sounds and genres. She was on the air for 26 years. Hard to believe I will never hear a new show from her. I was a huge fan. She made Friday Night Fun. She touched so many lives, Kate. So glad to hear how she touched yours. Oh, I was a huge fan. I mean, I'd never miss her show. Never. Was there a song in particular that got you through the pandemic that you listened to over and over again? Uh, I don't know about that. I, I don't think there was one show, one in particular. But the sh- one song she played that, that did st- stick in my mind, and it's the title of one of my chapters, Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. She played that right at the beginning of the lockdown. That stuck in my mind. When did you decide to start writing about your experiences during the pandemic? Okay, well, obviously I'm a writer, and this is not my first book, it's my second. Um, I write a lot of columns and essays, that's kind of my thing. And what happened was, when we went into the lockdown in March of 2020, I was completely freaked out, as I've said before. So I just started writing about it as a way of surviving. And the first piece I wrote was West Beth is a Ghost Town, about how it had just gone. It was a ghost town. It was just dead quiet. And so I sent that piece to the Village Sun, where I contribute quite a bit. It's a local website. And um, it got a big reaction. And then I just kept writing pieces about what was going on. And Lincoln Anderson, who is the editor and publisher, he said, Kate, people really like these. People are getting... I'm getting a big reaction. I saw a lot of people were liking it on Facebook and I was getting a lot of comments like you're, you're really nailing what I'm going through, even though I live in a different state. So I was like, whoa. So I just kept going mostly because it kept me going. And then at some point, a friend of mine said to me, Kate, you're writing a memoir and essays. And I was like, oh yeah, you're right. So then in December, like a year ago, December, I pitched this to my editor at Heliotrope Books, Naomi Rosenblatt, who published my other memoir. And she said, go for it. Let's 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 keep going and let's make this into a book. And then she gave me a deadline, which was June. And then I kept writing and the book just came out in November. You say in the book that you had several meltdowns during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. What were those meltdowns over primarily? Well, the one meltdown, looking back, it, was, it, it, it didn't last long, but boy, it was intense. I mean, this was like maybe in April, or it was in the spring, of, right after we were, when we were still in lockdown. Uh, all of a sudden, I, my computer wasn't working. I was like, oh my God, my internet has gone away. What happened? Well, I mean, not having the internet in the pandemic was, to me, a complete disaster. So I was totally freaked out. And I said, oh my God, what am I going to do? Um, I mean, I did have a landline. No, oh no, I wouldn't have a landline either with no internet. Um, I had a cell phone. So I thought, what did I do in the past? And before I was calling someone for help, I said, let me try unplugging this from the wall, keep it out for five minutes. So I did, I said a little prayer and then it came back on. I was like, oh, thank God. Because I couldn't have imagined not having the internet. And then another time, my cell phone got heated up. I never had that happen before. So That was another problem. So, I mean, it was all related to technology because we were so dependent on it. 
You mentioned that your church suffered a tragic fire during the pandemic. How much of a blow was that to you at that time, even though you were going to church virtually? Terrible blow, because, of course, we were all looking forward to, at some point, going back in person. So on the morning of December, I forget what day it was. It was the beginning of December. The fire was on December 5th, early in the morning at 5 a.m. I woke up. And a friend of mine texted me and said, I hope this isn't your church, but I think it is. And I saw the picture. I just burst into tears. I mean, it was obvious from the video that the church was gone. So that was like a, a terrible blow. Even though we were already were meeting online, there was no place to return to. I mean, and the church always felt like a sanctuary. And now the building was gone. So it was, it was a real blow. Yeah, we just had the one-year anniversary last week. So what's the status of the church now? What the status is, is that we are temporarily meeting at Calvary Church in uh, Gramercy Park. And last week we had a procession from there to the site of the fire. And we were walking down Second Avenue singing spirituals. And it was actually very upbeat. And then we continued the service in front of the ruins of the church. Uh, Right now, I mean, there's definitely the church will be rebuilt where we don't know. I mean, there's complications with rebuilding it on the site. It's got to be rebuilt somewhere in the East Village, but it's not really clear where yet. Of course, fundraising goes on. The pandemic made you learn to love clothes shopping. Now, how yeah. did it do that? Well, that that's kind of a bit of a, a, a silly piece. Um, I can't say it stuck, but for a while there, this was like last fall when there was nothing really to do, but stores were open. Um, I started to go, I went to Uniqlo to buy some sweatpants. I mean, I'm not much of a shopper, but I like Uniqlo. I needed some sweatpants. So I went there a couple of times. I had to return them. Um, Then I said, oh, I need a sweatshirt. So I went to Old Navy. So I realized this was something to do. It's not really that I, and then I liked what I bought. So I was like, oh, I look pretty good in these new clothes. Um, so it was kind of a joke that I, I learned to love clothes shopping. Uh, I can't really say it stuck, but it was sort of like I didn't mind doing it. I didn't hate it because it gave me something to do. And I was talking to the sales clerks about sizes and fabrics. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm turning into my mother. So it was it was kind of a, an interesting experience for a few months. It was connectivity and normalcy, right? Right. It was normalcy. It was like, what else was there to do? I mean, at this point, very little was open. I mean, museums weren't open. Restaurants were closed. Everything was closed. I mean, stores were open. That was one of the few things that was open. I think we all remember the buildup to the day when we got our first vaccination for those of us who are vaccinated. What was that like for you? Well, I was, of course, anxious. And as I say in the book, I went to the Javits Center, which is a very interesting experience. I had everything laid out on the table, you know, my my forms, uh, my insurance, my driver's license, my uh, registration for the vaccination. And I, I was nervous. I mean, I remember walking in the snow and ice, this was February, to the Javits Center, and there were all these construction sites nearby that the sidewalk wasn't shoveled. And I thought, oh my God, this is all I need is to fall and slip and not make it to the Javits Center while I can see it up there in front of me. So I stepped into the street and I walked in the street because I was like, I'm not going to fall and slip on the ice when I'm this close to getting vaccinated. So yeah, there was a lot of anxiety until the needle went in my arm. And what was that like? How did you feel after the needle went in? total relief. I almost started crying. And of course, they gave me the appointment for the second vaccination. And I was really happy when I went into the area where I sat for 15 minutes. Yeah. Then you have a chapter called Getting Back Out There. 
after I was vaccinated twice, and again, this was all before the Delta variant came in and threw everything haywire, I, you know, I started doing stuff. I started, you know, inviting people over to West Beth to see the show West Beth at 50, which is in the lobby, basically. And um, I had a few people up to my apartment and we took our masks off and we hugged and uh, um, I went out to eat a lot, although I was eating outside and uh, I had friends over and uh, not a lot of people, but a couple of people at a time. So it was great to get back out there and to be doing stuff and to see people and hug people. And uh, that was all in the spring. How, if at all, do you think you're a different person now because of the pandemic? I don't take anything for granted anymore. I realize how your whole life could just be taken away almost overnight or within a week or within a month. Um, All the things that we just took for granted as part of normal life disappeared. And even now, things aren't really back to normal. I mean, we have to wear a mask if we want to go see a play, to go to a museum. It's not really back to normal, but at least we could do these things. So... um, I don't take anything for granted anymore, and I appreciate all the things that I have. Now, you're encouraging people to write their own pandemic stories, and you provide writing prompts in the back of your book. What are those prompts? Well, I'm not going to read all 12, but I can read a couple. Uh, There are 12 prompts. And basically, I have to say it was my publicist who came up with the idea, and I taught writing at NYU for like over 30 years, so it was not too hard for me to come up with writing prompts because I would do that all the time in my classroom. So my thinking was that it helped me cope with anxiety and it's important for everyone to record what we went through. So I just gave some prompts that people could use as jumping off points. And I based the prompts on pretty much what I wrote about. For example, one prompt says, uh, what was your last regular activity or fun event before going into lockdown mode? Yeah, I mean, a great way to sort of get out your feelings, to really capture Mm -hmm. your own history through all of this. Mm -hmm. Well, this book is Behind the Mask, Living Alone in the Epicenter, your previous book, Looking for a Kiss, a Chronicle of Downtown Heartbreak and Healing. Kate Walter, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. For more information about Kate Walter and her book, visit katewalter.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>